Okay, hello everyone. I want to welcome you all. We're going to be looking at um, Matthew's genealogy as we make our way towards Christmas. So we're starting a new sermon series. And so we'll be looking at Matthew chapter 1 in just a moment. <clears throat> but there were two guys who were neighbors. They were close as friends. Uh, each man had a family and one son. And the two sons, they grew up together, and they too were very close. One day, one of the sons, Andrew, he decided to buy a 23andMe, one of those genetic testing kits that he and his father would take, and they'd learn all this stuff about themselves. And uh, they got the results back, and it was surprising. It was, they discovered that Andrew's father was not his biological father. There was in the database, though, uh, that Andrew had a half-brother. And his half-brother turned out to be Mark, who was his neighbor best friend. Now, Andrew and his dad, they were confused, and so they brought this to uh, Andrew's mom, and they said, this is what we discovered. And when she heard it, she bawled, and she ran up to her room and locked herself in it. What was going on? Well, it turned out that Mark's dad was the dad to both of the boys. Which meant that Mark's dad had an affair with Andrew's mom. And they tried to cover it up and have everyone grow, go on and grow up as if everything was normal. It was kept secret until the 23andMe exposed it. This is a true story. Through DNA, the stories of families are told and secrets are revealed. Now we're going to be looking at the genealogy, which records family descendants, and the genealogy was like the ancient version of the 23andMe genetic testing, where it reveals family stories and secrets as well. And it turns out that Jesus' own family history is no different than Mark, Andrew's and Mark's. Maybe it's no different from yours. Some of us may have been raised in scandalous family pasts. Some of us may have come from homes full of brokenness. But Jesus came into the world as the expression of God's grace to untwist family stories, to heal brokenness, to pardon sin, to set captives free. Mark and Andrew, you know, they may need years of therapy. Therapy helps many people. But for us as believers, we may need therapy, we may need all kinds of help, but what we all really need is grace. Grace can help us on the road to recovery and healing. It can empower us even to live for, with God's great purposes in mind. So whether your past or your family history is scandalous or even just healthy, regardless, we all need gospel grace. So uh, as the world trivializes Christmas to gift-giving and office parties, we want to celebrate Christmas as the power of gospel grace that Jesus brings to our lives. Okay? Now, when it comes to the nativity, 
for some reason, we think we can skip over the context, which is, in Matthew's case, the genealogy. This is some important context to help us understand Jesus' birth. So I'm going to briefly give you the function of the genealogy so that we understand why we're going to be looking at this list of tongue-twisting names. Okay? So Jesus' genealogy in Matthew's gospel functions in three ways. It is proof of royalty, history, and grace. Okay? First, it's proof of royalty. Uh, we're given a legal record of Jesus' family lineage to prove that he is a son of David and legitimately in the line of royalty so that he can claim the throne as king of Israel. Okay, second, Matthew has crafted his genealogy to actually tell the story of Israel. If you look at Matthew 1.17, he sums it up for us in three distinct eras. Matthew 1.17 says this, So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Okay? It all turns on Abraham and David, which really is all about the covenants that God had made with Abraham and David. So these covenants are what has driven and shaped Israel's history. That's the second thing. And then lastly, the genealogy, it functions to remind us of the stories of people's lives. People who did not deserve to receive anything good from God based on the mess that they created in their lives. But that is what grace is, undeserved favor and kindness from God. And how we see that highlighted in Matthew, well, we see that in this genealogical record, Matthew includes women. Typically, only the male descendants are mentioned in the genealogy. Traditionally, they don't belong in the record, and yet they are included. This is something that people would not have expected, and this is like grace. People in culture, they say no to the women, and God says yes. And to punctuate this, th there are five women that are mentioned in this genealogy. Three of them are also Gentiles, which, again, you would not expect in a genealogical record of Israel. Giving us what we should not expect because we don't deserve it. And yet God does. That is grace. He's countercultural to our ideas of um, just culture, but even righteousness, justice, and purity. So the genealogy is a record of God's history showing grace to a people who did not deserve it. The genealogy is proof of royalty, history, and grace. And from it, we extract, we can extract these portraits of grace, people's stories. And this week, we're going to see that grace renews lives and grants divine purpose. That seems like kind of important context for us to better appreciate the nativity and the Christmas story, reminding us all of what Christmas is really about. Christmas is all about Jesus bringing gospel grace. So with that, we're going to start in the beginning, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, 
and Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, and on and on it goes, okay? The first woman mentioned, verse 3, Tamar, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. That's the story we're going to be focused in on today. I'm not going to read the story of Tamar, which you will find back in Genesis chapter 38. But I will try to basically retell it and will make reference to specific verses in Genesis 38. But when, once we get into the story, we're going to discover that it was a totally different world. And so to understand the story, we need to understand the culture that the story was set in. And that's how we're also going to, going to understand God's grace and how it works. So our first heading is the culture. Okay? Um, Genesis 38 really simply is just a story about a family man. Culturally, there are going to be similarities, and there are going to be some shocking differences, as we'll see. Let me just mention the similarities. It starts to tell the story. There was a man named Judah. He was married to a woman, the daughter of someone that he had run into, a man named Shua. Okay, now, Shua was a really nice guy. Judah met him and said, hey, what's your name? I really like your daughter. And he said, Shua. And just like that, they were married. Okay? <laughs> They had three sons, Er, Onan, and Shelah. And in typical fashion, the oldest son, Er, well, he grew up and he got himself married. His wife's name was Tamar. That's about it in terms of the similarities. Now we're going to start to diverge and start to see some differences in what happens with the culture, okay? The differences. The oldest son, Er, he was married to Tamar in verse 7 says he was wicked. This is Genesis 38, by the way. Genesis 38, verse 7 says, he was wicked in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord put him to death. Okay? Now we're going to start to see the differences. So the father, Judah, he said to his second son, Onan, verse 8, go and perform the duty of a brother-in-law and raise up offspring for your brother. Now, you read that right. And this is something that's just very foreign to us. The brother had to marry the widow Tamar so that she could bear a child. What's that all about? Well, I got to explain two cultural practices that were prevalent at the time, which is very different from the way we understand marriage and family today. Okay? The first cultural practice, it was called primogeniture. This is where the firstborn in the family had a very special place the reason was because the firstborn would bear the responsibility of passing on the family name and being the executor of the family estate and wealth. Okay? This practice actually exists even today. You see it with royalty, just like with the passing of the queen in England. Right? Charles is now the king. Now, who would be the next in line after Charles? Well, it's not his brother Andrew, but his son, William. And who would be the next in line after William? Well, it's not going to be William's brother, Harry. It's going to be William's son, George. Okay, the firstborn has this privilege. Now, the times and the values have changed, but I would bet, you know, William's wife, Kate, when she was giving birth in all of her pain, she's screaming, but she out came George and not Georgette. And she was so relieved, right? It would have been like, yes! Because she stands in a very long story tradition going back to 1485 where it's all about this 
firstborn male. Now, from the importance of the firstborn son was this next cultural practice called leveret marriage. Leveret marriage. Because of primogeniture, the firstborn son had this duty, the right, passing on the family name through this male heir. But if the firstborn son did not produce an, if he died without producing a son and heir, well, in ancient times, then the second brother, if there was one, would have been unmarried. The second brother would marry the widow wife of the firstborn son, brother, and try to bear a son and carry on the family name. Okay, that's what's going on. The practice of leveret marriage. Why, why, was that, why did that even exist? Well, it was to preserve the widow because she was really made a part of the husband's family. That's why she would take on his name, right? It's strange, though, because she's still recognized as bearing the duty of producing an heir. But, of course, the family was also honoring her, their responsibility of taking care of this woman that had come into the family, but now a widow. Rather than leaving her out on the street where she would not be able to survive, they took care of her and they continued, continued to recognize her. And then just lastly, rather than bringing in another woman, like the second-born son's um, choosing, someone that, that he wanted, introducing someone who hadn't come into the family and hadn't built up trust, the family would stick with the firstborn wife. All these reasons, the widow wife, she maintained her place as the woman obligated to provide an heir. The firstborn's wife, this was a culturally valued position. That's how society ordered it and organized itself so that they could continue to pass on the history, the name, the wealth. We may not understand uh, what it was like back then. The values have changed dramatically, but it's not a matter of disagreeing with it or not, but just at least recognizing these differences. And I think we can appreciate a little bit more, and certainly someone who had the last name Kennedy or uh, Vanderbilt or Rothschild would understand this, the importance of the name, passing it on. That's what the culture was like. And so now we see what was expected of the second-born son. Onan, Judah's son, Onan, he seemed to comply with his father's wishes, except that he didn't want Tamar to bear a child, because it wouldn't be his child, technically, but the firstborns. So he made sure that Tamar would not fall pregnant. And then this is what happens, verse 10, 38, Genesis 38, 10. And he did what was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Okay? At this point... The big question is, what is Judah going to do to pass on the family name? There's a third son, Shelah. But Judah had a problem. And what was that problem? Tamar. See, the only thing that Judah knew was that Tamar was with his two sons, and they both died. So is she like this black widow, this curse? Judah was actually very fearful of his third son. So this is what happens. Genesis 38, verse 11. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers. He and his friend Hira, 
the Adulamite. Okay? We're meant to see that a lot of time has passed to the point that even Judah's wife had died. Sheila had grown up. But there is no mention of Judah giving Tamar to his third son, Sheila, even though he said he would, which meant that the clock is ticking for Tamar and she'd not be bearing a child. The cultural pressures were building up for her. She was in the family, but she couldn't do what she was obligated to do what she wanted to do, which was to bear an heir. But do you see Judah's dilemma? He's afraid that if he gives his son to Tamar, well, you know, that, that's the right thing to do and he's supposed to get an heir, but he might lose his son too. And if he loses his son, then he definitely loses the heir. But if he doesn't give his son to Tamar, well, at least he keeps his son, but they've got to figure out what to do in terms of the heir. Would he risk it? So Judah was stuck with his daughter-in-law. And you could imagine that Judah's probably not happy with her, suspicious of her, resenting her, shunning her, leaving her off in the corner of the house, not having anything to do with her. And Tamar, well, she's dealing with a lot of social shame. The only prospect that she had to look forward to was getting old and not bearing any child, getting past childbearing age, being neglected by the family. She wasn't going to be a mother. She wouldn't have the honor of bearing an heir. And Tamar realized that this is what was going on. And so then the story turns to the unbelievable. Tamar would take matters into her own hands. She didn't want to be neglected, left to live a life of social shame, so she did something about it, but it was crazy, and it indicates just how focused and desperate she really was. Verse 14. She took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Anam, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah had grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. Right? Tamar changes her clothes to a different kind of outfit, the seductive kind, and she went and she followed not Shelah, but her father-in-law, Judah. Verse 15. When Judah saw her, he thought that she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Now, Judah doesn't know who's behind that veil, and it's a play on words because Judah had completely neglected her, and in this compromising and awkward moment, he neglects her and doesn't see her. Tamar demanded that Judah leave her with something of his as a pledge until she got paid what was agreed upon, a goat. Now, what on earth is Tamar up to? It's a crazy story, so let's just hurry to the end because, you know, we don't want to keep talking about this kind of stuff, right? Verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. And she was being brought out. She sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not know her again. 
the townspeople, they're ready to stone this woman, this woman, this supposedly immoral woman. But this was Judah's opportunity to let out his resentment. No, let's burn her. But in that moment, Tamar pulls out the proof. These items belong to the person who is the father of my child. Turned out to be Judah's personal items that he had left with Tamar as a pledge. I wonder if you're following here. Tamar's pregnant, and the father-in-law is the father. You're thinking, ew, disgusting. But he was publicly exposed. And it took a really shameful moment like this for Judah to realize what had been going on. Judah's conclusion, what was it? Tamar, the daughter-in-law, was more righteous than I. What does that mean now? I mean, what is going on? Okay, that's the culture. It's very different, right? Our second heading, the covenant. How do we make sense of this crazy story and Judah's conclusion? Well, the story is about Tamar, but it is also just as much about Judah. Who is Judah again? Judah was the fourth son of Jacob. Who, Jacob had 12 sons. They would become the, the leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel. So it is a significant story we're dealing with. From the 12 sons, um, well, in Genesis, in this part of Genesis, we would come to learn about the Joseph story. Let's say you wanted to learn about Joseph, you would go to Genesis 37, and in Genesis 37, you would have learned that Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers, and the caravan would go on to Egypt. Okay, you keep reading the story, next chapter, Genesis 38, now we're learning not about what happened to Joseph, but we're learning about Judah. Why do we go from Joseph to Judah? And this is God's literary way of saying that Judah is just as important in God's plan of his unfolding promises. Just as important as Joseph was. And God's multitasking here. He would have Joseph be taken away to Egypt so that he would save his family later. But he's at work in Judah too to see this is what, to show us all that this is what the real storyline is about. God's covenant promises. Remember those promises that God made? God promised to Abraham, their forefather, that he would have many descendants to grow into a nation. They would have a land of their own and they would be a blessing to the world. That's Genesis chapter 12. Though Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, very significant, lays out God's promises and the whole history and the storyline of the Old Testament. God had covenanted with Abraham. You believe me, you listen to my voice, you follow my lead, and I will make sure that these promises that I have for you will become fulfilled. That was the arrangement, the covenant arrangement. For Abraham, believe the promises and act on it like you really believe it. And that's what he did. He said, God said, leave this land. And Abraham left this land. He gave up his family inheritance. All of Abraham's friends, they would live for wealth and fame and security. Just like our friends, right? But Abraham and his descendants would live for Yahweh's promises. Abraham taught his son Isaac about these covenant promises. Passed them on to Jacob, who passed them on to the 12 sons. 
What was being passed on through Abraham's family was this special covenanted relationship with the one true God of the universe, Yahweh. All the descendants, they existed because of these promises. How are these promises looking like in the life of Judah so far, though? He's wandered from his family. And with that, he's wandered from the covenant promises of God that he was supposed to believe, hold on to, and live out. In our chapter, Genesis 38, we see that Judah was living recklessly, like the prodigal son story that we read about earlier in Luke 15. He was, Judah was basically being faithless, ignoring God's covenant. And we see that in so many ways in the passage. He married a Canaanite. Traditionally, the forefathers were totally against that. He left his brothers and his family and got chummy with uh, Hira, a man, an, an Adulamite, but he was a foreigner, unfamiliar with the promises of Yahweh. He didn't seem to be a good father. He didn't raise two good men. Two of them were zapped by God for their wickedness, right? So the family is dying off, not multiplying. And then Judah wasn't a model of righteousness either, consorting with prostitutes. But the bigger issue than all of these little immoral ones was that Judah realized with Tamar that he was neglecting the preservation of the family name and with that, the covenant promises of Yahweh. He had his son. He kept his son, but he had no heir. And Judah really wasn't believing his life purposes was about God and his promises. That's what he meant when he said, Tamar has been more righteous than I. Tamar was more righteous than Judah because she cared more about producing an heir to preserve the family name than Judah did. That's what righteousness is. Believing and acting on God's covenant promises. And so, of course, you're not going to be surprised that when you're not living for God's divine purposes, his promises, you're living for yourself and whatever your heart desires, and immorality is not going to be far behind. So here in Genesis, bringing it all together, switching from the focus from Joseph to Judah, chapter 37 to 38, we're meant to be reminded of the context. Judah is going to, I mean, Joseph is going to maintain the people of God, keep them alive through famine in Egypt, so God can work his promises through the line of Judah. Okay, now we see what's going on. Judah had this problem with Tamar, but from the perspective of the covenant, do we realize that God has a, similar, has a problem too? What is God's problem? For God, it's how is he going to fulfill his promises when Judah was so rebellious and aimless? Someone who was in the covenant, but he refused to believe the covenant in a meaningful way. How could God grant promises to a people who really didn't believe in him or cared about his promises? Do we see that problem? God says, I promise to bless you, but his people say, I don't want your blessing. I want something else. In fact, give me the complete opposite. But God's blessings are all about life. And God, he also has to somehow be good on his word. When he says he promises, he has to follow through on it. But how can he when his people will refuse him? It's something like saying to God, I want a baby. So God gives you a baby. Then you say, I want a pit bull rescue dog to go with that baby. And everyone's thinking, 
That is crazy and dangerous. Why would you want that? God say, I don't think you should have a pit bull dog to go with your baby. But you insist, I want this. It's going to be such a blessing. See, your idea of blessing is different from God's. Should we be surprised then if the baby gets mauled? How does God bless you with what he said he would give you when you want something else? And then you get your life in a twisted mess too. I wonder if you're feeling that. You're feeling the problem that God has with Judah and perhaps with us. How are we going to be convinced that God's ways and his purposes are better than our own? How? The third point, the charis. What is the charis? Well, that is Greek. It's a Greek word for grace. Okay? I had to stick with uh, the Greek in order to maintain the hard C alliteration. Right? Culture, covenant, charis. We learned some Greek too. Okay? Charis is grace. How would God come through on his covenant promises? The power of grace. Now, you might be thinking, oh, yeah, people like Judah and Tamar, they need a lot of help from God. <laughs> but I'm good. I'm doing okay. <laughs> I'm not that bad. I'm not that desperate. Grace, though, would be for people like Judah and Tamar. But grace would also be for people like you and me. Because our behavior may not be that bad, but all of us have failed to trust God and live for his purposes over my own. That's where the similarity is. And so our purpose in life, just to make it very clear, is for us to understand and to come to love the grace of God. Covenant grace. Do we know what that means? Do we know how to live that out? That's our purpose. That's where the story of Judah and Tamar goes. Grace would be for the wanderer like Judah. He, he would not live by the conviction of God's purposes. He got himself into a mess, and it's from his shameful consequences that God would actually still redeem him and give him the heir. God in his grace. And he really removes the shame. How? Well, if you follow the story of Joseph in Genesis, we go from the Judah in, of Genesis 38 to Genesis 49. Judah has grown into his role as the leader of the clan of his brothers. I mean, Tamar has really changed him, brought him back to his senses. And Jacob is on his deathbed in Genesis 49, and he blesses each of his sons. And when he comes to Judah, this is what he says about Judah. Genesis 49, verse 8. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. That sounds like a, a good blessing there. <laughs> Through sin, scandal, shameful consequences, 
This is what God would do for Judah? He did not deserve it. But how could he be given it? Well, how else does God make something beautiful out of a mess but by grace? See, if you follow Judah's line, no one would deserve God's blessings. None would want his promises. But the genealogy of Jesus is a history of God's grace shown to undeserving people leading right up to Jesus. And so, yes, we come to Jesus. And I want to focus on him, but I'm not going to give, give you the typical line that he took our shame so that we could be forgiven and redeemed. That is true. But primarily, what it all leads to is that Jesus trusted his father, even to the point of death. And that's what was the righteousness that would lead to life. That's what he was demonstrating for us. That's what true faith is. Looking to the Father's purposes and believing them and living by them. We could not do that. God, Jesus did that for us. And now through Christ, we can actually start to realize, oh, God's purposes are good. He's brought salvation. His purposes are better than mine. His grace is powerful to change even my heart. So I would actually trust the Father. Grace for the wanderer by looking to Christ. Grace would also be available for the one looking, living for the wrong purposes. And that was Tamar. She was desperate for a child. Desperate for worth. Desperate to find worth for something good. It just wasn't God. Judah said Tamar was more righteous than I, but that's not really saying that much. And in all likelihood, Tamar, she was not trying to preserve the covenant of Yahweh, but her main concern was to be socially honored by being able to bear a child. That's what a woman's worth was linked to in those times, bearing a ch an heir, especially an heir. It was something that money could not buy but any ordinary woman could have. So with Tamar, we don't have to focus on some over-spiritualized answer, oh, that she did something that was full of faith and piety. No, it's hard to make that fit into her story, right? She went to some extreme lengths in desperation to claim worth in the eyes of the world. But it's very subtle there. Because what Tamar wanted, it wasn't anything bad. It was wholly good to have a child. But how she went about it reveals what was driving her, what her purpose in life was, which was other than God, leading her to do something desperate. And yet, Tamar would be included in this genealogy, given this place of honor, because her, her worth was no longer found in what was honorable in the eyes of the world. Tamar's worth was found in God. That's what we're meant to see when we read Tamar's name in the genealogy. That's how God's grace works. He redeems, and he gets people to live for his purposes. And God doesn't want us, his people now, to have to learn that the hard way. 
That doesn't have to be your story. You don't have to hit rock bottom like Judah and Tamar in order to come to your senses. But we do need Judah and Tamar's story to teach us and remind us of what it's all about. Our purpose in life is to understand God and his grace to us in Christ. Why? Well, I have to state that clearly and straightforwardly because we think our purpose in life is to do good. We're mistaken. The deeper purpose is to live by God and his promises of grace. You've got to understand that. See, Judah and Tamar, they both turned what they thought was good into what they wanted, their version of good, not God's version. That's what people do with good. They justify themselves by it. And even Judah, clueless, unaware even of himself, he probably thought, I'm not that bad. Perhaps you know you're not that bad. Okay, that's fine, but are you still wandering? One could be wandering in quiet desperation, or you could be living for something that you don't think is bad, but which is good, and you justify yourself, and you chase after it with intensity and desperation, and that was Tamar. In both cases, you're not living for God and his purposes. Just, just wondering if that story sounds familiar. Maybe it was your story. Maybe it's your story now, what you're going through. And hear this, if you don't think this is you, could this be your story in the future? Let's be clear about the first principles. Our purpose in life is to understand God's grace. That's how we make sure we don't become like Judah and Tamar. We get grace. It's not about me trying to be good or compensating to do some good, neglecting the deeper meaning, the covenant promises of God and his grace. We need to do good. I'm not saying we don't need to do good, but when we don't, what we need to recognize is grace. Where I humbly repent and confess, and I'm reminded that I am loved and esteemed by the one voice that matters, and that is God's, not the world's. That's how he will heal the deepest wounds, and that's how he will build the deepest lives. I want to conclude with just two very simple, quick applications. First, Talk to God like he was an intimate friend. And second, make it your purpose to embody grace in your life. Okay? First, talk to God like he was an intimate friend in all honesty. i got to say that even for myself as I reflect on my life, it's, been, it's, been, it's not intuitive that I talk to God honestly, where I bear my deepest thoughts and desires in my soul. But we need to start to think about doing that, moving in that direction. Share your deepest thoughts and desires with the, with the Father. The loving Father has his hand and voice in your life so that you would hear from him as you respond to him and you would even feel his tug on your heart. Respond to him, talk to him. And I say that because that's how you grow to actually trust him. We actually don't want to talk to God if you if you're really honest. And you don't want to talk to God because you think you know what he will say. Oh, you think he's going to be disappointed in you. Oh, he's going to say no to what you want. Oh, the life that he has for you, well, that's not going to make you happy. 
All of that is a lie. Maybe you're already in a mess. Maybe you think you can claw your way out of the ditch. Another lie. Reclaim your purpose to live with God according to his grace. Claiming God's purposes for your life. Understanding grace. It's a big task, but it starts with honestly talking with him like an intimate friend where we start to trust him more. Second, make it your purpose to embody grace. Maybe you've already aligned yourself with God's purposes for your life. You understand grace. You thank him. You praise him. God has blessed you. Hallelujah. Well, what does that grace look like in your life? It really looks like embodying it, living it out. And how we do that is by continuing to serve God and his people especially to people who are undeserving, because that's what grace is. There's so many people, even within our own church fellowship, lives of brokenness, oppression, people who live without purpose. They're wandering, or they're living for the wrong purposes, who need a major overhaul. And they might even be responsible for some of the consequences they're dealing with. So many people who need your help who understand grace. And serving others might be like leading publicly. It might be leading and caring for someone. But it is you taking the initiative to know what your purpose in life is and therefore living it out, showing grace to others. And if you start to do that, you know, you will start to see how God's purposes for your life truly are glorious and how beautiful grace is. It may not be what you have wanted, but if you're living by grace and purpose, then you will experience God's blessing. But you will also experience this. Oh, wow, this is not easy. Maybe I haven't been living for God's purposes all that much. The grace of Christmas, let us celebrate together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the the most glorious gift that you have given us, your son. He is the grace of God who has appeared before us, as Paul would write to Titus. We thank you that he embodies grace for us and brings us life and salvation. Help us to look to him and to follow him, to live with great purpose, to understand that grace, and to trust you, our Heavenly Father. And for those who are struggling, we do pray that this word about grace would be a word of hope. That God, you can work your power in people and you can untwist lives. You can heal, free, bring pardon, bring total restoration. And so we look to you. We pray for your grace to be at work in us. You have promised, you have fulfilled those promises in Christ so we know that you will work. Help us to believe. Help us all to live with great purpose for you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.